Before I hand it over to the next inductee, I'd be remiss if I did not talk about Tommy John. I've been given an opportunity as one of the only players, the only one right now, to be inducted in the Hall of Fame with Tommy John surgery. It's an epidemic. It's something that is affecting our game. It's something that I thought would cost me my career, but thanks to Dr. James Andrews and all those before him, performing the surgery with such precision has caused it to be almost a false read like a Band-Aid you put on your arm. Touchdown! Alabama wins! Jack Nicklaus wins his sixth Masters, his 20th major championship. At the age of 46, four years older than anyone ever has been as a champion of the Masters. This is the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center. Here's Dr. Michael Ryan. Hello, pros and joes, jocks and docs, athletic trainers, therapists, coaches, and fans. Welcome to the Victory Over Injury Podcast, presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. This is a podcast for athletes, competitors, athletic trainers, therapists, fans, sports enthusiasts, and anyone interested in learning more about the legends who have been vitally influential in the world of sports medicine, rehabilitation, athletic training, mental preparation, athletics, and more. We are going to peel back the layers of sports injuries from multiple perspectives to gain a greater understanding of what actually goes on in the minds of athletes, athletic trainers, physicians, surgeons, therapists, coaches, and more in the face of injury. And whether or not you are an elite athlete, recreational participant, passionate fan, or occasional observer, we hope to bring you into our world to understand what it takes to achieve victory over injury. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Victory Over Injury podcast presented by Andrew Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center in beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan, and today's guest is an expert in helping athletes and patients of all kinds achieve victory over injury. From an early start in his career, today's guest has followed a course paid by few before him, but those who precede him have changed the course of treatment for foot and ankle injuries. Today's guest has cultivated and deployed his knowledge and implemented his experience to become a force in the world of foot and ankle surgery, and in particular, foot and ankle sports medicine. He is a board-certified surgeon in foot and ankle surgery, a recipient of numerous academic awards and grants, has published book chapters and peer-reviewed articles, and is an educator and faculty member at the American Sports Medicine Institute, where he trains surgical and non-surgical fellows. He is a crucial part of the medical teams for Troy, Samford, West Alabama, Tuskegee, Birmingham Southern, Shelton State Universities, and the University of Alabama. He has fixed some of the most famous ankles in recent history, including Kenyon Drake, Tua Tagovailoa, and Jalen Waddell. Uh, an energetic innovator, brilliant surgeon, empathetic team physician, caring dad, exceptional athlete, and rising star. Without further ado and pleasure, Dr. Norman Walter. <laughs> Man, Mike, come on. Hey. I, I mean, like I said, I knew we needed to call a timeout there. I was about to call a timeout halfway through it. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Maybe... I think my kids would say I'm a caring dad most of the time. That the rest of that I got. I, I, I saw him coming here today. You were you're already at one baseball practice or game, and the other the other kid was coming in with lacrosse sticks. And you're all over the place, the, man. So yeah, I feel like we're on the fly all the time. Yeah, man, you, you hate to hear that. I don't like hearing that stuff. So every once in a while, it's like every once in a while, like, that's all right. But I, I guess the only reason I, I have those things is uh, is because of all the amazing people that I've been around all my yeah. life. I wouldn't be here without them. But wow, <laughs> we'll get into that here in a little bit. But first of all, thank you very much for joining us in the podcast. I've been excited about this one, especially with your expertise. And I think what's interesting is that things are very relevant right now in this idea of the world of foot and ankle. And one thing I would love to start off on and talking about is the injuries that Tiger Woods sustained in his accident. Obviously, you are also an avid golfer. I've seen you play. You're incredibly good. So you have a really good understanding, being able to tie in both 
his injury, what is required to become a, a really good golfer. Can you talk a little bit about what we know as the public in terms of his injuries and what that potentially means for his golf career? Tiger has unfortunately been in a pretty bad accident. You know, trauma is a life changer. People that have been in bad traumas will tell you they're never the same. And that's probably going to be the case for Tiger. And I don't just mean from the golf standpoint, but from a life standpoint. If you look at it, there's multiple parts to this. Number one is the physical part. Can he heal? And then two is the mental part. Can he mentally get through the humps and bumps and the pretty large challenges that he's got ahead of him? And then the, the last part is, can you get your golf game back? Which pales in comparison to one and two, right? And we know he's had some pretty significant injuries, some known and unknown. We know he's hurt both sides. Hurting both your right leg and your left leg is a big deal, no matter how major. And we know these are pretty major. The bone broke through the skin, open tibia fracture on one side, which is a big deal in of itself because the tibia is the hardest bone in the body to heal. He's got to avoid infection, avoid the problems that come with that, get the bone to heal, and then get his strength and everything back. That's not to mention the pretty severe, some say maybe even worse injury that's on the other side which are going to lead to limitations, problems, and, and difficulty getting back to playing golf. So he's got a really long road ahead of him. And I'm not talking about two weeks, three weeks, two months, three months. We're talking about year to years ahead. And it's going to be awfully hard for him to get back because he's been through a lot already. He's in his 40s. It's going to be a big challenge. Will he get back? I don't know. I certainly hope so. Wouldn't be surprised if he came back for one tournament, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, I think, if, like you said, if anyone could, and from a mental standpoint, he could. We've seen him play, you know, was at Pebble Beach in 2008 when he won, playing on a torn ACL. This is a guy who's experienced injury, played through it. But you're right, this may be a totally different story. And when you look at it, you mentioned an opium tibia fracture. That's very similar to what Alex Smith experienced from the Washington Redskins, right? So it's not just can the bone heal, but all the other factors you mentioned, well, the risk of infection, the soft tissue injuries that have an effect on the strength. So that in and of itself, let alone, that's only one side. Absolutely. Alex Smith's story is incredible. And if you haven't seen his story that they produced, please go watch it. It's amazing. However, this is of that same ilk. He hasn't developed a lot of the problems Alex has, but he's certainly at risk for them. And it takes a big toll in the body to be able to deal with all those injuries and try to heal multiple things. And, and so he's, it's gotta be a stepwise treatment plan. It, it's gonna be multiple surgeries. He will have five to 10 to maybe more surgeries once it's all said and done. And, and so he's gotta be physically ready for that. He's gotta be mentally ready for that to deal with the surgical part of it first. And then he's gotta deal with the rehab part, which it starts over and can be exhausting and Godspeed to him. I hope because the golf is more fun when he's there that he can get back, but it's certainly going to be a challenge. And then once it's all healed and done, he's then has to be able to play the game, right? Sure. And play the game at a high level. I'm not talking about going down to your local municipal course and put the ball in the hole 18 times. We're talking about playing walking 72 holes at the PGA tour level. And as incredible as those guys have gotten, it's going to be a tall task. Yeah. When you think about his other side, a lot of the public knowledge in terms of his injury is an ankle or midfoot injury. I think we've heard yeah, pins and screws. That leads us to believe of certain things based on surgeons. But let's just step back from a global perspective. When you think about a bad injury from a trauma like a car accident, what are the main concerns that you have in terms of the major bones that you really worry about, the four major injuries? 
the things that we worry about, the, the bad ones, yeah, I think number one, talus injuries. The talus is the bone that sits up underneath the ankle joint. It's the one that allows your foot to move up and down. It's got terrible blood supply and any injury to the talus is a big deal. And the bad ones can cause the blood supply to the bone to go away, which can lead to chronic damage and problems with the cartilage. That's number one. Number two is what we call a P-line fracture. A P-line fracture is really just a bad injury to the end of the tibia at the ankle. The tibia is the big bone. And that's a game changer type injury. There are all kinds of studies out there. There's even one out there that says the quality of life from somebody who's had a P-line fracture is worse than that of somebody living with HIV or AIDS. So it gives you a comparison. So that's a big deal. Another one is a calcaneus fracture. The calcaneus is the heel bone. Everybody knows what the heel bone is. The reason that's such a big deal is that's the bone that first makes contact with the ground when we're walking. And it's a different specialized type of bone. And when it breaks, it changes really how you walk and, and how you're able to propel yourself forward. And then the last one is what we call a Lisfranc injury, which is just a name that we call for a midfoot fracture dislocation. The midfoot is where the arch is, where the sort of the main meat of the foot is. And it's essentially like separating your foot from your ankle and the bad ones. And so when you have a bad list frank injury, it can really affect your ability to push off, to walk normally. And anytime you see one of those four injuries, I think we got a big mountain to climb. Yeah. And let's assume both ends. Things heal. As you mentioned, you got a long road. If they don't, a lot of times you can end up with what's called a fusion. Is that possible to play golf at a high level with a fusion? It would be very hard. You, you lose motion of a joint. And when you lose that motion of the joint, you lose that flexibility. When you lose that flexibility, you lose some of that power. When you lose that power, that really starts changing your golf swing, your ability to generate that power Tiger's so famous for. I always tell patients, when they have these types of injuries, our goal and in the initial part is to put Humpty Dumpty back together, right? We got to take all the broken pieces and we got to put it back together. So our first goal is to put it back together. We let it heal. Once it heals, we sort of see where the chips fall. Once the chip, once the dust is settled, we say, okay, do we need to do anything else? Are we okay with where we are? Or are there other things that we need to do that we can potentially make you better with? But it's a multiple step process and can sometimes be a long time. And to play at a professional level, much less a Tiger Woods level, it's a tall ask. Yeah. Not impossible, but it's a really tall ask. As you mentioned, you know, hopefully things go smoothly for him. We wish the best. And I think that he's, like you said, better for the game and better for sports. So hopefully it comes through with it. Everybody wants Tiger around. Whether you like him or don't like him, he's better there because he creates more interest. And I love golf and love to see him walk in the fairways. And hopefully we'll be able to see that again soon. Yeah, I hope so too. Backing up, I'd like to get an idea of uh, our guests, where they grew up, where they're from. And you're a local guy. You're from Mobile, Alabama, just down south. Is that right? I am. Local. You consider Mobile local? I guess that I mean, means you're from... He's <laughs> not around here. So yeah, I grew up in Mobile. I'm a water guy. I miss it. As a matter of fact, I've had to learn to be a lake guy living here in Birmingham because I miss, I miss the Gulf. But I did. I grew up in Mobile and went to... UMS Wright down in Mobile for 14 years. It's a long time ago in school, huh? <laughs> that is. 14 years ago, the same camp is very different now than it was when I was there. When I first started, it was actually a military school. Oh, U really? UMS stands for University Military School. Fortunately, I, I guess probably for me, 
that went away and the, the girls' school merged with us. But I, I went to the same campus for 14 years. It's like a college now. It looks nothing like when I was there, but it's a very impressive place. Shaped my life, that's for sure. Some greatest experiences in life have been on that campus. And a lot of the people that I met, both classmates and teachers, have made me um, who I am today. It was a very influential place in my life. Well, I think that you're a pretty notable figure in UMS right history, too, because you're one of team members on the only men's basketball state championship team. And you're also at the same time for 20 years, I believe around that time frame, the leading all-time point scorer. Is that correct? I, that is correct. I was the all-time league scorer in UMS history. I, I don't know what that says about the quality of basketball players that came before me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't I know mean, about that. You held it for 20 years. So you got you to gotta hold something. I was the leading scorer. Some people might say that was because I was a ball hog. I don't know, but I, w I was fortunate enough to have the ball go through the bucket a bunch, but probably more important, or not probably much more importantly, is that I was a member of a state championship team. It's the only one that's, UMS is an old school, it's founded in the 1890s, and it's the only basketball state championship they've ever won, largely due to some amazing teammates. We had a, a guy on my team, Sam Haganis, who was Mr. Basketball, actually went on to play at Alabama and had some phenomenal teammates, but really it was all about Having an amazing coach, you had an incredible vision for probably a bunch of subpar athletes who could put their discipline together and, and beat some teams that were probably far superior athletically than we were. But it's one of those things that I remember winning the state title like it was yesterday, and, uh, and I'll carry it with me for a long time. Yeah. And you mentioned that coach that you worked with in particular was a pretty influential figure in terms of in your life then, but I think that going forward, some of those lessons still persist today. What were some of those lessons you recall? Absolutely. Kemper Todd was our head coach. And if, if you take 10 influential people in your life, he would absolutely make the top 10. He was a special person. He, he was maybe controversial because he was a very hardcore disciplinarian. One of his idols was Bobby Knight. He, he wasn't, wasn't quite to that level, but he had extremely high expectations out of us. And he demanded discipline and accountability to an extreme, I'll use the word extreme level, certainly for 15, 16, 17, and 18 year olds. And by doing so, we became better teammates and better people. And that really has persisted on. I mean, learning the discipline of focusing on the things that matter and learning to let go of the things that don't matter and time management and the things that really do affect you, not just in your athletic endeavors, but in college and medical school and, and then accountability and learning that the truth is paramount and that too, when you make mistakes, you're accountable for your own mistakes and you have to face those consequences and that you'll ultimately be a better person for those. And you have to take responsibility for that has shaped me and stuck with me to this day and really has in a formative time in my life been an important part of, of making me a better person, a better surgeon today. Yeah. Becoming a surgeon, did you always know you want to be a physician or where did that come from? And were your parents doctors? Was that an influence at all? No, my parents weren't doctors. My mom was an educator. She was a teacher who then became a principal and, and my dad is an attorney. They're number one and number two on the most influential people in my life. And that stands today. I, I wouldn't be here, not just because they supported me in everything I did, but because they 
gave me the toughness when I needed to. They gave me the discipline when I needed it. They gave me the love when I needed it. They helped me make the right decisions when I needed it. So they are the sole reason I'm sitting here talking to you. They were not doctors. My dad is actually a medical malpractice attorney. So he defends doctors for a living, which is an odd way to become a doctor knowing that he's defending doctors who are getting sued. And to this day, a lot of his friends are physicians. And I always said that he saw the dark side of medicine and I grew up around the dark side of medicine. And I always thought that if he had the utmost confidence in doctors and the medical world and what we were trying to accomplish, that if, if he believed in it, man, everybody should believe in it. And I certainly could. And I was naturally drawn to that because I'm a science guy. I like that aspect of, I guess, how my brain works, but also because if he believes in it, man, everybody should believe in it, right? He's seeing the the bad parts of it. I mean, that's what's pretty impressive because a lot of people could have gone the opposite way and said, well, I, I see all the dark side and I want nothing to do with that. But you actually flipped because I think you're right. The, the fact that your father was able to see the faith in the doctors he was defending, maybe there's a reason he was defending them. The fact that you were able to see that through that was an influence. You going to medicine is pretty imp- impressive. You know, he always told me when looking at medical malpractice, he always said, if I have a hundred cases, 90% of the time, that doctor is doing absolutely everything right. Well, yet we had a bad outcome. That happens. You've seen it. I've seen it. That, that happens. It's a part of it. Now it's not a fun part of it and, and you have to deal with it and address it, but the doctor did everything right. Nine times out of a hundred, the doctor did absolutely everything right. It came to a critical point. There was a fork in the road that needed to be made. The doctor made the decision to go left based off sound decision-making, sound science, sound data, and we got a bad outcome. And maybe the outcome may have been different if he had gone right at the fork in the road. Maybe not, but he did everything right, was doing it all for the right reasons. He says only about one out of a hundred were bad decisions made, not necessarily out of spite, meanness, neglect, blah, 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 but maybe a bad decision was made. So he always said it's really rare of all the physicians he dealt with. He always said they're in it for the right reasons. They're in it to help people. And that to me is very comforting. And I know that's how I feel. And that's the reason I'm here. And the reason why I love to do what I do is to help people. And when he felt that way, seeing physicians when they're at their greatest distress and, and in the most difficult situations. And I've always felt like that fits me. And if he believed in it, I certainly could too. It's a very interesting, influential way, but I think it's an awesome way because you've seen both sides of it, even going in. And then obviously that was during your time growing up and in high school. And then you end up going to UVA. Is that right? For college? I did. I went to the University of Virginia. Best decision I ever made. Had chances to go do other things, to play basketball at other schools and to take the, the real hardcore, I guess, basketball approach to things. And ultimately, went to Virginia for really the academics, but also potentially the chance to play basketball and to walk on there. And there ended up being a coaching change. And probably the best thing that happened to me was ending up in Charlottesville and being a student. My older sister went there, still convinced today that that's the best thing that happened to me. And University of Virginia is a big part of my life still to this day. My parents have a home up there and we still go and spend a lot of time up there. And unfortunately, I don't know if I had the the foresight to realize a good decision I was making, but in hindsight, it was the best thing that happened to me. And as I understand it, surprisingly, you actually majored in chemistry. Is that right? 
Well, that, that's not probably one of the highlights of my life. <laughs> what idiot majors in chemistry, right? I, I don't like people to know that because, uh, but yeah, I did. I, I majored in chemistry. Knowing the 19 or 20 year old me was probably the path of least resistance, but who does that? Yeah. yeah. You know? Well, I, I thought it was interesting because two of our other partners, Jeff Deuce and Lyle Kane, were chemical engineers. And I was like, well, maybe there's a theme here that I totally missed out on. So if I'm an idiot, are they dumb or, or is that vice versa? I mean, what are they thinking? Yeah, I don't know. I'm just wondering how that applies to medicine these days, but that's funny. Yeah. Anyway. If I had to do it again, I'd probably choose something far more interesting. <laughs> oh man. So you mentioned you attempted to walk on the basketball team, but there's a coaching change. What exactly happened there? Jeff Jones. So I actually, I remember going up there to meet, I actually got to meet him and it was a little bit of mutual interest there, but ultimately he ended up getting fired and, and as new coaches come in, they have no interest. And, you know, he's like, you can join the rest of the masses and do it. And, and I, I wouldn't get enough. Yeah. I wouldn't go into the NBA. I, I had hopefully a brighter future in something else. I don't know that I knew that it was going to be medicine at that point, but there were new doors to open. And there are times that I regret maybe not going to some of the other schools. There were some academic schools. Lehigh recruited me. Davidson recruited me. The Naval Academy recruited me. I occasionally wonder what kind of player I could have been. However, I don't regret it for a second. I'm better off the, with the path I ended up with, and, and Virginia is the best place for me. And now I get to be a fan of the best basketball school in the country. There you go. No offense to all you, Duke and Carolina. And the way Bama's going, my team's this year, good number this one year. in the SEC, number one in the ACC. Doesn't get any better than no, that. that's <laughs> those are two pretty good records there. Throughout your athletic career, did you have any injuries that helped spur you into this idea of becoming an orthopedic surgeon? Because oftentimes it's a common sort of theme. Anything that, you know, caused you to do that or any injuries that you experienced? Interestingly, I didn't really have any orthopedic injuries. I fortunately stayed pretty healthy. My coach may have said this because I didn't play very hard or wasn't hustling or giving it um, everything that I needed to give. I did have one bad injury, not necessarily orthopedic, I guess it may be. But my junior year in high school, I was going in for what some might call a dunk, some might call a layup. Some might call it unathletic, whatever it was, <laughs> something up there. But anyway, I ended up getting flipped upside down. The, the guy chased me down from behind and flipped me upside down. I landed on my head and had a severe concussion. But I also ended up a quadriplegic for eight hours, which is a pretty wild thing. I fortunately yeah. don't remember any of it. I think uh, my mother still has PTSD to this oh, day from it. No doubt. Because obviously that would change your life. My parents were both at the game. I've seen a film of it. It's pretty nasty, but yeah, I w couldn't move my arms or my legs. Ultimately, ended up finding out that I have a pretty large spinal canal. And really what ended up happening is my spinal cord just banged around in the canal. I didn't have a fracture or anything like that and, and caused some bruising and some temporary paralysis. But wow. eight hours of it, I think was pretty scary for the, for the people I was around. I fortunately, probably yeah. don't remember, remember a whole lot of it. I just had to deal with the concussion symptoms for the yeah. next two weeks. So that's probably wow. the only major injury I've had. Yeah, that's pretty uh, legit. That's pretty scary. Yeah. <laughs> it was. I think it was scary for all of us, but unfortunately, no no residual problems. I ended up coming through it pretty okay. And wow. So that didn't prompt you to become like a neurologist, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, no offense to neurologists out there, for, but fortunately, I stuck to the orthopedic yeah. route. So then you get through UVA and then you end up coming back to Alabama for medical school. Is that correct? UAB. What was that experience like? How'd you like coming back home? Coming back was awesome. Number one, we're fortunate in the state to have UAB and it's, it's medical school. It's probably the 
crown jewel of our education in the state. And I was fortunate enough to get in. I don't know who pulled the strings to get me in medical school, but I slipped in the back door. Uh, Yeah, I came home and spent four awesome years here, namely because I met my wife during those four years. Uh, (laughs) The good medical school experience. She was still an undergrad. Don't judge. Um, (laughs) Not that far removed. (laughs) I met the love of my life at that point. And uh, fortunately, we're nearly 15 years in and she's still hanging with me. And Meredith has been probably right behind my parents and most up there with the influential people in my life, certainly keeping me together. And she actually helped me through medical school. Medical school is is not easy. And I had to change my way of thinking. I would probably say I, I wasn't the best college student. I guess I did well enough to get into medical school, but I tended to procrastinate and like a lot of college students do, but was able to do enough to get by. But medical school, you can't do that. I, at least I couldn't. My sister, Carson, has innate brilliance to her and things come very easy for her not so easy for me and i had to learn to work every day to keep up with the pace to really put in the grind of building that knowledge and and so for four years i had to stick to it and fortunately my girlfriend at the time who would become my wife when we graduated from medical school she was invested at that point already that's right yeah she's smarter than me hopefully she won't listen to this there's a lot of great stories maybe yeah Yeah. well i don't want her to know that she may be smarter than me. <laughs> That's okay. My wife is definitely smarter than me, and I'm okay but admitting it. Well, um, she, she's got to be. Yeah. She's got to have a little dumbness to her to end up with me, right? No, 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 no. that's right. <laughs> so obviously, UAB is positive in the fact that you, you set your career on the trajectory. You meet your wife. At what point during that four years here back at Alabama did you realize that orthopedics was your career path? So I, I realized probably during my rotations, I set out to see what orthopedics was like. I think namely because a lot of my father's good friends were orthopedics at home. And so I knew what they were like, and I knew they were a group of people that were like me and that I liked them. And so orthopedics was something I wanted to see. Orthopedics is not for everybody. And so I actually probably thought I was going to be some other kind of surgeon. But when I got into seeing what orthopedics was like, I realized that number one, I liked the work. And that number two, I liked the people that were in it, the men and women that are part of the orthopedic world or people that I knew I wanted to be around. And then the second part of that is that I realized that I like dealing with the injured patient, which is very different than the sick patient and vice versa doesn't always work. A lot of physicians don't like dealing with injured people. They're better with the sick people. And I I realized that was my niche that I enjoyed the injured patient and that I enjoyed the process of getting them back to what they like to do, keeping them active, getting them back on their feet and giving them life back in a different way. We, as orthopedists, we don't save people's lives by sewing their coronary vessels together or taking an aneurysm out of their brain. We help save their life by giving them their life back, by making them active again, letting them do the things that they like to do in life, which is a great gift to be able to provide somebody with and take a lot of satisfaction out of that. It's maybe not life-saving, but it's life-saving in a different way. Yeah. And once you realized that's what you wanted in terms of becoming an orthopedic surgeon, did you have an idea of exactly where you wanted to go to further your training? Were there specific programs you looked at or people you looked at that you wanted to go to? What, what led you to the next step? 
we do rotations in orthopedics, and so we go go see other places, and and then obviously we go through the interview process. I I did rotations at University of Mississippi. I did one here at UAB, and then I did one at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte. And I knew when I rotated it in Charlotte that that's where I wanted to be. Also knew that there was zero chance that they would take me as a resident. When it came to, I mean, they really had the breadth of everything that I wanted, that they were focused on education. Their volume was high. At the time, only took three residents a year or so. It was a little rough uh, not having a whole lot of help as residents, but I knew that was something that I wanted to get into. I ranked them number one with our rank list when we go through the, the match process, which is certainly an interesting one, but I did it just because I, I knew that's my goal. I had no chance until match day. I opened up the envelope and realized that that's where I had match. <laughs> I thought I was going to be going to Northwestern. I probably shouldn't say this, but I'll say it anyway. So I actually really like the Northwestern program. It's very different. Yeah. It's very subspecialty driven. Mm-hmm. And so I went up there and interviewed and, uh, <laughs> with a couple of their guys, said, uh, you know, we kind of like you if you think you do well here and we're losing our southerner we need another one we know I, think, yeah. I think you would you're like token southerner yeah i was like so i so if i'm not here i'll be the token southerner he's like yeah that's right <laughs> and i don't even know where they rank me but i yeah. rank northwestern number two but yeah. i ended up matching charlotte i'll never forget opening that envelope and seeing that and i was like holy cow like is this a mistake and i ended up matching there and this one of the best things to this day that's happened to me. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a pretty wild system when you really think about it. Everyone else outside of the medical field, they get to choose. Sure. They interview at different places, find a place they like. And if they get an offer, they get to choose the offer. I offers. feel like I threw it into the lottery oh, ball huh. and they just like rotated around. Hey, you're going to Charlotte. Right. Yeah. The good news is I think that the actual algorithms do favor or, or are at least in the interest of the applicants, but it's still, it's like... You could end up at your number one choice and be thrilled and you know where you're going, or you could end up at your sixth and you're like, well, we're moving to New Mexico or Detroit right. or wherever. I, I figure that the 45 people in front of me all had to go elsewhere for me to land there. I still to this day. So Dr. Hanley, who's retired, he was our chairman in, in Charlotte, who's one of the best chairmen you could ask for. And president of AOA and had, had done all kinds of stuff. He was a spine surgeon in our Residency director, Stephen Frick, who is the most amazing mentor. I, to this day, have this vision of them opening and seeing my name on there going, what in the world happened to our match this year? How did we get stuck with this guy? (laughs) But hopefully at the end of five years, they can be proud of where I am for the training they gave me. That's for sure. But that was where I wanted to go. And fortunately, I matched there. And man, it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic program. As awesome as resonance it can be. As it can be, yeah. It's a slog, but you know, if, if you end up in the right place, it definitely makes it worth it. I matched there with a guy named Brian Scannell and Chris Bray, who are two of my closest friends you can ever imagine. And it was just three of us. And man, man, I was lucky. We And we were all from the South. And I remember our chairman told us when we graduated, he was like, we love you guys. You guys are hard workers, but we, we ain't having three of you in the same class again. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And at what point, through your training, did foot and ankle come to the forefront and you realized this was what you wanted to do? Probably the most influential person for me going into foot and ankle was a, a surgeon named Hodges Davis. Hodges Davis and Bob Anderson were sort of the top of the food chain in Charlotte. So 
a little bit of background is probably the most well-known foot and ankle clinic in the country uh-huh. is at Ortho Carolina. And they have some of the most impressive surgeons that you could ever meet. And when I was a second year, I got put on Hodges Davis's service and absolutely loved him. He's an awesome man. He is a great teacher. He's energetic. He loved what he did. And I, I just remember thinking, wow, I really liked him and how he did it. And so every single person in my residency was convinced I was going to do sports or shoulder and elbow. And I just got drawn to foot and ankle from Hodges. I just loved everything about what he did as a person. And I enjoyed being around him. And then as I got to know his partners, Bob Anderson, and then Carol Jones and Bruce Coleman, who are the four of them, Carol Jones is one of my best friends if not my best friend in orthopedics. I saw what the four of them did. I thought, man, what they have going is pretty cool. You can't recreate that, but they did it. And then I got to see the neat things about foot and ankle. You get to take care of young people. You get to take care of old people. You do all different kinds of conditions from congenital problems to things that develop later in life and then sports. And I also saw that there was an avenue into sports. And what about that? Did you see that really defined this? ultra subspecialty of foot and ankle, but sports medicine. So foot and ankle in general is a young subspecialty. When you compare it to adult reconstruction, so our total joints, people or sports medicine or other aspects of orthopedics, it doesn't have the depth of what I would say science and literature. It, it hadn't been around as long. It's a young subspecialty, if that makes sense. And so I really saw that there was an opportunity to dive in and help that grow. Number one, number two, very few people do sports foot and ankle. And it was a serious need, not just a need, but there are just not many people who do it. And there's certainly not many people who do it well or weren't. And Dr. Anderson, most people call him Bob, is one of my mentors who is still at the pinnacle of that. He is the Dr. Andrews of the foot ankle world. Mm -hmm. And he's an amazing man. And I remember him telling me, there's just not many people who do what we do. And I remember thinking that's an opportunity to parlay the field I like into the sports part that I like and that have always been drawn to. And it made sense. And so I kind of got drawn into that sort of over the course of my residency. And is that what was also an influence in you going to your fellowship in Vail at the Stedman Clinic? Was that part of that? Because number one, number two, number three, number four. Yeah, that's the reason I went there. So I was interested in sports foot and ankle, and they knew that. And and I was going to do all foot and ankle. I knew I would, but sports foot and ankle was interesting to me. At the time when I matched, I didn't know that the job that I currently have was going to be available, but they knew I was interested in it. And the way they train in Charlotte, I got to see all different kinds of ways how to do things because they have so many foot and ankle physicians. So I won't say that it was pinpointed for me to go with Dr. Clinton, but I had the opportunity and I ended up matching to go to work with Tom Clinton in Vail, Colorado. If Dr. Anderson is number one on that list, Dr. Clinton's 1A, you know, they're the two giants Mm -hmm of what I call sports foot and ankle. They're right there at the tip of the iceberg. And so it was a really good chance to take what I'd learned from four people and really go spend one year one-on-one with Dr. Clinton. And for most people, 
that's not the best way to train. You need to see a bunch of different ways, but I was fortunate enough to see a bunch of different ways of residency. So I was able to hone that in. I'm sure Dr. Clinton still to this day laments having spent a year with me asking questions, <laughs> but if there's one person in my life outside my parents that I owe where I am today, it's to that man. I mean, Dr. Clinton's the single most influential person outside my parents in my life. Aside from the surgical side, what else was so influential about him? You know, I got to see everything he did. He is an amazing family man. Number one, he put God family first. His job was like probably third, but it was way behind one and two. And to watch how he did that was amazing because he was so good at number three. And I think because he was good at one and two made him so good at number three. And he has such a way with patients. It's impossible to describe unless you're there. And he made every patient feel comfortable. He made people feel like they were the most important thing at that moment, which they were to, to him. And he's a gifted educator. He knows everything inside out and backwards. He's a great surgeon. Just, I can't give him enough accolades because most of what I've built in my practice, that foundation is because of him. And then the guys at Ortho Carolina, I always say you stand on the shoulder of giants, right? I'm lucky enough to stand on the two biggest giants that are out there, at least certainly in my mind. And I'm nothing without them. And I'm still not anything because I owe it to them, which is pretty amazing to me. Yeah. That's a pretty great experience to have trained with, like you said, one and one A. You can't really do better throughout your training. That's a gift. Absolutely. And I'm, I still wear them out to this day asking yeah. them questions, but that's okay. I'm, yeah. sure they're like, well, I'm sure that's what they're there for you. I'm sure they welcome it. Interesting enough, your time in Vail actually in a way connects you back to Birmingham through Eddie Lacey. Isn't that right? That is right. At that point, I had already decided and signed to one to come back to Andrews. And so we were at that point headed back to Andrews and, and Eddie Lacey, one of my favorite people I ever met, had a bad turf toe injury when he was uh, playing in Alabama. And so at that point, it needed to be fixed. I was coming back. So there was going to be some continuity of care with me. Dr. Clinton wrote many of the texts on how to treat turf toe. And so we were together there. And so they sent Eddie out to Vail to be fixed. We operated on him there. He had an incredible outcome for an absolutely very difficult problem. Ended up winning a national championship the following year was MVP. And, and that's all owed to Dr. Clinton and his surgical expertise. So yeah, my experience with Alabama football started with Eddie Lacey. Eddie's whole goal when he was in Vail was to, he wanted to let us, he's like, can I go ski? We're like, absolutely <laughs> not, no, Eddie. Do no. you know how to ski? He's like, no, but can I learn? We're like, no, we're out here to take yeah. care of you yeah. and get you fixed yeah. up. You're not here to ski. <laughs> we don't need additional injuries. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. And you mentioned you'd actually already secured a job back in Birmingham with Andrew Sports Medicine. How did that come about? Where was the connection drawn from that? Out of that really came through a couple avenues, but namely Dr. Anderson and knowing my interest in sports foot and ankle. There was a surgeon that was here who I owe a lot to as well, Angus McBride, who was getting out, was transitioning out and they need another foot and ankle surgeon and the timing worked well for me to come back. I'm from Alabama. 
my wife is from Alabama. And though we're not both from Birmingham, it, it made sense uh, for us to come back. And, and originally I had my hesitations and for those people listening to this podcast that know Lyle Kane, he kept me on the phone for three hours one night because I was very hesitant to take the job. And I'll never forget um, that this was when I was at the very end of my residency in Charlotte. Meredith was getting very frustrated. She's like, what are you doing on the phone? I said, I'm still talking to this guy. <laughs> I don't really know him, but I'm still talking to him. He's like just trying to promise me that I wouldn't quit. And it's more ironic now that I know Dr. K and, and he and I are very close. Thinking, good Lord, that guy spent three hours on the phone with me. I, I wonder if that was me talking the whole time. <laughs> he didn't do that. That's surprising because <laughs> Lyle on the phone for three hours, That's I, I can't imagine I, that. Right, I can't either. And actually that was the best, one of the most, influential conversations I've ever had in my life because I wouldn't be here today and ended up taking the job and I'm here. So, well, I think with that, obviously, as we mentioned at the beginning of this is that you've become pretty much the you know consultant or assistant team physician for most of the colleges and really the high schools here. If I have an ankle injury, it's definitely coming to you because I don't know what the heck I'm doing with ankle. But um, I think that with that, Alabama became a special place for you. And I think one of the players that really comes to mind that has been mentioned numerous times throughout several different guests that have been on this podcast. And a reason you were on the cover of Sports Illustrated that is actually sitting right behind us is Kenyon Drake. Numerous people have mentioned him, Jeff Allen, Brett McCabe, Lyle Kane, Kevin Wilk, about him being a very unique individual, having come back from not only a pretty devastating ankle injury, which you fixed, but also sustained another injury to his forearm before even going to the national championship. Can you speak to Kenyon Drake's injury? What happened, how you fixed it, and then really to him as an individual and what he meant to you as a player? Because that was a pretty special moment for you, not just because they won the national championship, but because you saw a guy who's come through so much right. score the winning touchdown. So Kenyon is and will always be probably the most special player in my heart for lots of reasons. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I operated on him. Sure, I did his surgery, but Kenyon was an amazing person as I got to know him and we got to know each other very well. He was an incredible study in how he changed over his four years at Alabama to, to really work himself into one of the most incredible athletes I've ever seen and to go into the NFL and be as successful as he was. Kenyon Drake's injury at Ole Miss that day, I'll never forget it. I remember, like the back of my hand, I remember like it was yesterday. It was probably the first, and I'd operated on lots of Alabama athletes up until that point, but it was the first, oh Lord, moment that I had. Like I knew what immediately looking out on the field, what his injury was, and we generally don't go on the field when an athlete gets injured. Jeff and Jeremy and Ginger handle the athlete on the field. When they come off the field, we assess them. If it's an ankle injury, I'll do with it. If it's anything else or we'll tag team, whatever we need to do. And, but I knew you watch it on film immediately. What's wrong? His leg is dangling sideways. And I knew immediately and Lyle took off on the field and was Johnny on the spot. And he reduced that thing in a heartbeat. So I remember going to the locker room and knowing we got the x-rays, knowing he had a bad injury that needed pretty immediate attention. And so we actually put him on a helicopter and flew him back to Birmingham. I don't know. I guess we won the game. I don't even remember most of the games, but that was one of those games where he thought, oh Lord, I've got number one, this is why I'm here. Number two, I got a lot of work to do. Number three, he's one of our stars. 
And then the state of Alabama, that creates a lot of attention. And the surgery was the surgery. I feel like I can do those surgeries in my sleeve, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's the other things that come with it because you can do the surgery and they can go many different ways, right? And ankle fractures aren't all the same. I tell that to patients all the time. And his was on the bad end yeah. of the scale. What kind of ankle fracture exactly did he have? Kind of, if you describe it. He had a fracture dislocation. He had a very high fibula fracture. So it was high, what we call a Weber C type a, fracture. Above but it the was ankle joint. Also, yeah. It was also broken into multiple pieces. And then he had torn all his ligaments. So he tore the syndesmosis ligaments, the ones that keep the big bone, the tibia, and the fibula together. And then he torn his deltoid ligament. He had actually knocked off a piece of cartilage in his joint. He did everything that you could do that would be bad in an ankle fracture. The surgery itself went great. And man alive, I've never seen anybody get after rehab like him. It was impressive. And it didn't come without its up and down, just like you would expect. Um, But to watch that guy come back, And I'll never forget this. So he came and he worked and he worked and I spent a lot of time with him because by the end of his career, it was pretty obvious he was a pretty special player. And so he he had a touchdown catch against Florida. It was an 80 yard touchdown catch. It was one of those, I think it was the first or second play of the game was at home. It was one of those wheel routes. Lane Kiffin puts his hands up in the air before the play basically is run. We score first possession. And he ran 22.1 miles an hour on that play. That was his fastest recorded speed, top-end speed at Alabama to that point. On the national championship kickoff, where he scored on the 95-yard kickoff return, he ran, I think it was 22.4 miles an hour, which was his fastest time at Alabama and after his ankle injury. And if you look at that, Sports Illustrated. As a kid, you have a dream to be on Sports Illustrated. You never know how you're going to get there. I never knew I'd really be in the background. But the real reason I have my hands up and then I'm yelling is because it's not just that we're scoring, but I'm so happy for him because that's a life-changing moment for him, whether he makes it to the NFL or not. And obviously he has. And he came a long way, just not from that, but from the breaking his arm against Mississippi State, Dr. Kane putting him back together. And man, what a guy. You talk about persevering and getting through it and everything that comes to him he deserves what do you think about him in terms of his personality that allowed him to do that because there's plenty of players who've had similar ankle injuries who worked hard was there something special that you could identify from his personality that allowed him to get through an injury like that yeah you know when i think of kenyon i think he's got a really good smile he's always got like this i will say water off ducks back because that's not really fully how it is but i just remember he he would smile a lot at you um, I even think he had braces when he was in college. He'd smile at you and he'd go, I've got this. I'm going to work through this. We'll figure this out. And every little bump, he took it with a smile and a, I'll figure this out. I know that this is just the next challenge. And I don't know that he was that way when he first came to Alabama, but I'll say the process made him that way. And he would have never gotten through that if he hadn't evolved as the person that he was. And, and he's still that way today. I respect the heck out of Kenyon. Yeah. And I'm proud of him, honestly. I've been told as soon as the time ticked off of that clock and they won national championship, first people came to find were like you and Dr. Kenyon Jeff Allen, right? That's true. You know, when the 
time goes off and everybody kind of runs out there. You kind of don't know what to do. And I remember that was in Arizona. And I remember that he borderline tackled me from behind. And I remember him saying, I owe this to you. And Dr. Kane was there and he basically jumped into Dr. Kane's heart. He's like, I couldn't do this without you guys. I don't know that that's true, but that was pretty cool for us to, to feel like you had a little bit of a part of it. I know we're part of it on the fringes, I guess, but it was pretty neat because he certainly made between that and the onside kick in that game. Those were the two biggest plays and, and to see a guy come from where he was to that's pretty awesome. Yeah. That's a pretty special moment. And you're right. That's the pinnacle of, I think what we do is having someone come to you after a moment like that and say, wow, thank you. It is a sort of related, but unrelated story on the picture that ended up in Sports Illustrated. I had no idea. So that's an AP photo. I am sitting in the Phoenix airport and my phone starts to like blow up and I don't really answer to him because we're headed back and my sister calls me. I'll never forget this. My sister calls me. She goes, oh my God. I said, what? She goes, the last thing I ever thought would ever happen is when I go to pick up, she lives in Richmond, pick up the Richmond paper and you're on the cover. <laughs> I was like, what? I had no idea. I and mean, apparently it was the AP photo that was on multiple papers. And I said, well, that's awesome. <laughs> she was like, no, it's not. It's like just the miles like I wanted. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. Speaking of other, obviously, well-publicized ankle injuries, one that we can't go on without talking about is Tua Tagovailoa. This was probably the more, you know, publicized ankle injuries in recent history outside of maybe Kendra Drake, but there were so many specials and stories and they followed him for the Heisman Trophy ceremonies and all this stuff. Speak about, first of all, what is a high ankle sprain, which is the injury he initially sustained? And then talk about the way of fixing it, which is a tightrope, which is a relatively new way of approaching these things. For me, when I came here and I had high ankle sprains, or something you treated and players were out for eight, nine weeks, treating conservatively. So I'll back up a little bit, then I speak for a long time on high angle sprains, but so Tua, it's an interesting deal for me. We get into orthopedics to take care of patients, not to get thrust into the mainstream media. And it's generally highly uncomfortable. And Tua, his case was way outside of just, not just sports media, it was mainstream media. And it's very awkward for me to have your case be thrown into not just the sports spotlight, but in the mainstream spotlight, because there's nothing that we do that, or at least that I've ever done in my training that prepares you for that kind of stuff. And it's hard because you had people giving opinions all left and right who had no idea what they're talking about, or some were just frankly wrong and you have to just take it. And that's okay. That's part of it. We live and die by our training and you just, you know, that you're trying to make the best decisions for that patient, that athlete at the time. So Tua's case taught me a lot from that standpoint. Now, when it comes to high ankle sprain, he had what I would call the mother of all high ankle sprains and he has been great and he has been all about us using it for educational purposes. And so there've been a lot of people who have seen it. And and when you see his imaging and you see his, his MRI and his x-ray, it's pretty obvious why he got surgery. At the time, a lot of people were, what in the world are they doing, et cetera, et cetera. So a high ankle sprain in and of itself, I don't love the term, but it kind of is what it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I have a better one, but 
it is where you tear the ligaments that connect the fibula, which is the little bone on the outside of your ankle, to the tibia, which is the big bone, the main bone of the ankle. And, and it keeps them, if you will, the roof of the house together. And when those ligaments tear, the fibula wants to move around. So it'll move backwards or forwards or spread out. And so the ankle is unstable. And a lot of people with a high ankle sprain can actually like walk around fairly normal. I say fairly normal, but it becomes really hard to push off and jump and do explosive things. The really bad ones, obviously they can't even walk around. So that's what a high ankle sprain is. It's not the same as I twisted my ankle and I stepped wrong in the yard and my ankle turned in. It's, it's actually completely opposite. It's the other way. Your foot gets stuck in the ground and your body gets twisted to the outside around you. And so it's actually a very opposite type mechanism. And so once those ligaments tear, the ankle becomes unstable. So one of the things that has evolved over the past 15, 10 years, but even more so in the last five years is how we treat them. For the longest time, they were treated non-operatively and, and they still, most still are treated non-operatively, but occasionally you'll get the ones that are the bad ones that are unstable. And so back in the day, if you will, you used to put them in a cast and let them try to heal up, but sometimes they wouldn't and people struggled. And it became a very frustrating thing for coaches, players, parents, because it took a long time to come back from and a lot of times they weren't the same. Well, um, there's been an advent of an instrument I use that is an Arthrex instrument called the tightrope and it's become a mainstream implant and that we actually use it for other things. It's probably most well known for the high ankle sprain now after two is case, but it essentially is two metal brackets. It's on either side with some extremely strong fiber wire, if you will, holding those two brackets together. It's they're almost unbreakable, not fully, but pretty close. And it allows you to pull the fibula and the tibia back together and to hold them while still allowing some, what I would call normal motion, because it's not completely stiff and it's not completely rigid. It's not pinned to it like you would with a screw. What we have found is that implant is the ideal implant for that because it allows us to rehab fast while holding the ankle where it should and letting the ligaments heal. We have become more aggressive over the past years. I originally started with our first guy that ever had this as a player named Ken Robinson, who we did, and he got hurt in the Tennessee game and was dying to play at LSU, which was his first time to go back to LSU because he's from Louisiana. He basically was like, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, and we ended up doing it. He played two weeks later. And so fast forward to his case, very similar deal, except for Tua got paraded around at the Heisman Trophy at the college football awards. And so he's being seen essentially all through his rehab process, which was an interesting sight to see. Ultimately, the credit doesn't go to the surgeon. The credit goes to the athletic trainers and the physical therapists and the whole team, because you can't do it. It's not just about putting the tightrope. It's about putting the tightrope in, doing that appropriately, putting him through the rehab process, the player buying in, the athletic trainer buying in, the physical therapist buying in, putting it all together. And when that works, you can see a guy play like Tua did four weeks out and was the MVP of the Orange Bowl. That's an incredible testament to him and technology. Yeah.
Do you think this is probably one of the biggest game changers in foot and ankle surgery, sports medicine in your career? It's, it's certainly one of them. Absolutely. It is certainly changed how we treat that injury. And it is allowed a very frustrating injury to be treated a little more effectively and allow players to get back. And probably more importantly, it's not about getting them back in three weeks. It's about allowing them to get back and not still have those long-term problems. Yeah. And there's a little bit you can argue even a protective mechanism for it against future injury in the long term. And so without a doubt, it, it has been a game changer for me and my practice and a lot of people, a way to treat an injury that was hard to treat and that I would say that we didn't do a great job with for a long time. Yeah. And as you mentioned, there were numerous commentary floating around this injury is that, hey, the team's being too aggressive with this. They're doing surgery when surgery's not easy because it's just, it's ankle sprain, right. ankle sprains heal. What would you say and to really educate those who are misinterpreting this in terms of, again, this is not just a surgery to make the players go back faster, right. which it does allow that, but the primary purpose is not that. What is the primary purpose of the surgery? That's one of the hardest things for me to deal with is when you hear people have those comments, because I can't comment on that. I have to just be quiet. But the reality is returning to play and playing in two or three or four weeks is like not even that's not the goal. It's not even close to the goal. The number one goal is to take an unstable ankle and make it stable. Period. That's what we're doing. We're trying to fix an unstable problem. So now by doing so and making it stable, we're able to rehab them faster. And I never, ever have told a player, oh, you're going to get back in two weeks or three weeks. I've never put a timetable on it. But what I do tell them and what I am comfortable doing now, it's saying, I am not going to put a timetable on it. If you meet goal A, we're going to move to goal B. If you meet goal B, we're going to move to goal C. And I will never slow you down through that process. And as long as you are meeting certain metrics and you're progressing along, we'll go as fast as you can go and go safely. And as long as you're doing that, I won't slow you down. And so we're doing it for the problem of the injury, not to return them to play. What people don't understand is nine out of 10 high ankle sprains I see don't need it. But the ones that need it, I'm not afraid to do it and do it the right way. And so it, it's not like everyone that comes in the door, I'm putting tie ribs in. No, every high ankle sprain. Yeah. And I've witnessed that personally. I did not get a lot of experience in the foot and ankle realm and residency. We had two months of it max in five years. And seeing the sport side of it, I got zero. And so the high ankle sprain to me was an anomaly, but you did a very good job of explaining to me as a fellow your criteria for those that do receive that. And right. there are different grades and those are pretty objective factors. Right. When you look at grades, like you said, the vast majority are a low grade high ankle sprain that can right. be treated conservatively. What do you use to help you determine that? So generally, number one is their ability to bear weight. That's one of the first things I look at. And it's not, can they walk on it? It's, are their ankle mechanics when bearing weight normal? Number one. So, and you usually see that right away on the field. Like they'll come off, there's a limp. Some of them can't put weight on it at all. And some of them can, but it's very different. Number one. Number two is, so one of the ligaments goes all the way up the leg. So how high is their pain? So a lot of times you'll see pain extending halfway up the leg, sometimes all the way up to the knee. So do they have that? On exam, do they have problems with what we call the external rotation exam. Do their physical exam findings fit with all these? And if they do, I will then get an MRI. 
What we found that on the MRI, if two of the main four ligaments that are injured and the fluid's extending up the leg and the ligament is tearing up the leg, that's an unstable injury. And what I've found is that when I take that person to the OR and with them asleep and they can't fight you and you stress them, the ankle's unstable. And then I've got some interesting x-rays of athletes who have not what most people call a normal x-ray with them awake, the MRI that fits the criteria, I put them asleep in their ankle is far from normal when you put them to sleep. And so having built those criteria over the years, I found that it's been a pretty successful thing to fall back on. Yeah. So you're using this objective data yeah, absolutely. to make these decisions, which again, you would characterize that the vast majority of these are pretty low grade. Like you mentioned, the nine out of 10, but it's really those one or two out of 10 that exhibit all these signs that lead to instability that really warrant this. Absolutely. And it becomes, I won't say pretty obvious, but when you've seen them and you know the bad ones, the ones that are going to struggle, the ironic part is when we have ones that don't need surgery. And when I think, hey, listen, you have a high ankle sprain, it's going to take you three or four weeks to, to get better. And coaches will say, and this isn't just at Alabama, it's other places, well, why don't you fix it? And I say, well, coach, he's going to be better in three or four weeks without surgery. Why would I do surgery when it may take the same amount of time and then we get to a, not do surgery on that? Isn't that better? And they're like, yeah, I guess you're right. And so it's flipped because the number of times I say, well, he still has an ankle sprain, but it, you know, it's going to take him three or four weeks and he'll be back. Well, why don't you put the tightrope in him? I'm like, because he doesn't need it. <laughs> And you mentioned this idea of obviously number one, a stabilized ankle. Number two, you kind of alluded to what are the long-term effects of an ankle if it's not fixed and it is unstable, even if it scars down and heals a little bit, but it hasn't healed in the proper position with the proper stability. Absolutely. Interestingly, I'm going to circle back to your question, but I, I will also tell you, it's very interesting to me the number of times, and, and we have to also get better fully identifying this injury because the number of times it... I bet there's five or six guys that I will operate, football players that I'll operate on every year who had a high ankle sprain and we'll say September. And they missed four or five weeks, tried to go back, played a game, couldn't do it, ended up sitting down and then maybe played one or two, but kept having to start and restop and couldn't, just never got better. And ended up doing the surgery and they got well. And so we're still not perfect at figuring that out. And so where that sort of evolves is we're not, and even I'm not perfect at it, and hopefully research will figure that answer out as to which one needs it and which one doesn't. Because we're not always right. We'll treat them non-operatively and get it wrong and they'll struggle. And what we have found is that there are people that don't get fixed that end up having that sort of chronic problem their ankle never gets right it can also lead to stiffness difficulty pushing off and then the cartilage can go bad and you can get arthritis and so it can also lead down a pathway for chronic problems and so you, you hope to head that off at the pass we don't always get it right in, initially but you know we've become better at it a lot better at it than we were 10 years ago five years ago and we're still getting better at it. And we're hoping research is going to kind of 
parcel those out. So we don't have that five or six people at the end of the year who say, you know, ended up missing six or seven games and say they still can't play and you fix them and they get better. You say, well, golly, I, I wish we'd done this eight weeks ago. Yeah. Would have been better off. Do you think with these, you, you mentioned with Kenyon's injury, for example, that there can be injury to the cartilage of that talus bone in the ankle. How many of these high ankle sprains do you see have injury to the cartilage as well? Actually, I do an arthroscope on every one, so I go in there and look at it, and it's a pretty good amount. Now, the degree of that varies. So I, I would venture to say, um, without having it in front of me, I'd, I'd say probably 30 to 40% have cartilage damage, and of those 30 to 40%, it may be 20% of those are severe, and then some of them are just small little what I call avulsion pieces. So the severity of that can vary, but I, I would say probably 30 to 40% have some type of cartilage damage. Gotcha. From the get-go, your concern of the cartilage is already there if you're looking at 30 to 40%. And again, knowing that we do not have long-term data uh, on this procedure, do you think that the tightrope in and of itself by restoring stability has the potential to theoretically decrease the long-term, you know, poor prognostic aspect of the ankle, or meaning Theoretically protected long-term. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why we do it. I hope so. What we're trying to do is stabilize the ankle, right? So that's the core principle of orthopedics, right? In the knee, in the shoulder, the elbow, wherever we are, we want a stable joint with healthy cartilage. And so if there's instability there, you don't want to leave it unstable. It doesn't matter what joint you're talking about because instability leads to cartilage problems. Cartilage problems leads to pain that leads to long-term cartilage problems and goes down a bad road, right? And so, yeah, that's the crux of it. You hope you're preventing that long-term. Yeah. Just to circle back to two, there are, there are two stories that I thought were pretty comical. One is, and both involve you, you were there so you can tell your side of this, but I remember being in the actual x-ray suite after he injured his ankle at the SEC Championship. And we're sitting in there and you walk in and they get an x-ray and the x-ray is waiting to be pulled up digitally. And you walk in to examine him and you lean down and put your hands on him. And you can tell he's there. He's, and he, you know, two is kind of a happy-go-lucky sort of guy. Like even in a, a dire situation, he's got a very positive attitude. But at that moment, he gets quiet while you're examining it. And as you lean down, everything is quiet. And he goes, boo. <laughs> I just remember stepping back and just laughing because I'm going, man, I, I'm sitting here just trying to like, be a wallflower, nothing that like, caused any disruption to the quarterback of Alabama, like all this stuff was going on. And he's just joking around with you. He's just a character. That's right. Golly, I, I remember it felt like forever to get that x-ray. And I do remember being in there and he did go boo. And he goes, Doc, I got this. We got this. And I was like, I was, I remember thinking to myself, I know you got this. I hope I got this. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. But yeah. I remember thinking that. And as an aside, I remember... So when he hurt his other ankle the following year, this one was also pretty obvious for a little different reason, but it needed to be fixed. And I remember being with Dr. Kane and Jeff Allen sitting there. They're like, all right, when are we going to fix it? I said, maybe it doesn't need to be fixed. Maybe we can figure out a way not to fix this. And I was like, what do you mean? I was like, I said, maybe, what do you think? I, I know it fits all the criteria and I know what his MRI looks like, but may, maybe it doesn't need to be fixed. And they both gave me this crazy look. He said, what? <laughs> what? And I said, I don't know that we need to go through this. <laughs> they, they both said, 
huh? He said, I, I know it needs to be fixed. I know he can do it. I just don't know that I'm ready to go through this again. They both started laughing. I was like, I'm not kidding. Yeah. And then uh, Lyle looked and goes, you're going through yeah, this. For, fortunately, yeah. he did great. And, yeah. But golly, I remember thinking, golly, I don't know that I'm ready to march back through the media storm again. Yeah. But Well, and, and speaking of Lyle, I think one of the other sort of comical stories about this whole thing is that during his first surgery, everything's going smooth. You scope the ankle. You're putting in the tightrope and as the tightrope works, it's almost like a, like a Chinese finger trap. Meaning when you pull on the suture that is the tightrope, the actual really strong braided suture, it tightens down on its own. It does not release. And as the story goes, you're in there and you pull this thing. It's tight. looks good. You check it on x-ray. looks really good. And then Lyle, of course, who again is just helping supervise because he's not a foot and ankle surgeon, leans in, pulls on it one more time and makes a comment that, yeah, this one's for the championship. And said he tightened it a little bit more. Did he, for the record, did he really tighten it more? Absolutely not. I mean, you know, weak, weak, Dr. Kane is. He's got no chance to sense that thing down anymore. Yeah. But that is true. He, uh, first of all, Lyle likes to just heckle. Yeah. So he's there to heckle me. All, all kidding aside, no, he's not. Lyle is a brilliant surgeon and, and smart as they come and valuable to be there, but he does enjoy heckle me. And he does enjoy taking one last tug on the tightrope to say this one's for the national championship. I had to ban him from that because... I think he's over. We did not end up winning it that year. And I told him, if you're going to say that, we better win it. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I will say though, he did do it with one of the Jalen Waddles tightrope. So, and we did win it this year. So maybe he's back in the game. Back in the game. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, you covered Holman High School. So you're doing a lot of sports medicine. What are some of the most common on-field injuries that you see in Young athletic people, that's on the football field or kind of in general in your office. Well, sure. It's pretty common. Number one's ankle sprain. That's the most common injury in sports, period. Number one, time loss. And, and so that's number one. It is from just simply rolling your ankle and you get up, you shake it off and you move on to, man, that's a bad one. It looks like you grew a grapefruit on the side of your leg. And that's number one. You mentioned I take care of Homewood. And, and so on top of that, I get the chance to sort of see it all on the field. And unfortunately, concussions are top of the line thing. And so we got to keep our skills on in evaluating concussions. And unfortunately, they do happen and they're common. And really across the board, I mean, I see all kinds of stuff. And that's why I like doing, you mentioned him, what I, you see finger injuries, you see lacerations, ACL injuries, which I give to my partners and all kinds of stuff. But number one's, Obviously, foot and ankle injuries, ankle spray. Yeah. You know, other injuries in that kind of realm, two that come to mind that are commonly talked about, especially in pro athletes, are turf toe and Achilles tendon ruptures. And take your pick, I guess, what is a more difficult injury to come back from if you're a professional athlete? Without a doubt, say Achilles tendon injury. If you looked at the old literature on turf toe, first of all, there's very little literature out there. A turf toe is where your big toe gets forced upwards and you tear all the ligaments on the bottom of your toe. I hear people say, I, oh, I had a turf toe all the time. And I think to myself, there's no way you had a turf toe. But the reality for a turf toe is it's a pretty high energy injury. And you see it in football. You'll occasionally see it in basketball, but it's where your big toe gets forced up. You tear all the ligaments on the bottom of your big toe. And it's a problem because you lose your ability to push off. You lose your explosiveness. I and mean, that can be a real issue for running backs, cornerbacks, whoever. But what we found is we've gotten better at the surgery and the athletes really will come back from that 
quicker and better than we originally thought now that we have more literature out there. Achilles tendon injuries are a different animal. Now we can get athletes back on the field. We can get them to returning to a fairly reasonable, if not same level. Man, it takes a long time. It takes eight, nine, 12 months for them to feel comfortable again. And some of that is the mental aspect. And some of that truly is the physical aspect, trying to get it strong again. It's a weekend warrior injury too. I did three today. I see them all the time. And it's a frustrating injury for people because the people who get them are active people and it knocks them back a little bit. And it takes them a while to get back to playing tennis, to playing basketball, to doing the things that they like to do. And it's a, a struggle. It, it just, it's not that you can't get back there. We can get you back there. It just takes longer than you want it to. Why do you think that is about that Achilles tendon? It's far and away the strongest tendon in the body. And, and it's your main mechanism for power, for pushing off. And so it's what creates that last bit of explosiveness as you're running, jumping, and allows you to propel yourself off the ground. And I think patients notice a deficit or a problem with it more than they do a deficit of other muscles. And so I, I think it's one of those things that because of your reliance on it, because of how important it is to strenuous physical activity, a small amount of deficit or weakness they notice. And so it, it just takes a long time. And I, that's the, one of the first things I tell patients who have them is that you just got to wrap your mind around this, that it's going to take us a while, but we'll get you there. Yeah. And there's been some kind of conversation of non-operative treatment versus operative treatment for that. And again, I think that my limited knowledge in that, that world is re-injury rates or re-tear rates are lower with surgery, Yeah, but obviously there's the risk of infection. To me, it boils down to yeah. one thing. You can treat them non-operatively and you can treat them operatively. And it boils down to the risk of wound problems, the risk of your incision being a problem. And that boils down to the health of a patient. I also tell patients there's a reason why you've never heard of an athlete ever treating it non-operatively. I'm not aware of a professional athlete who's ever had one treated non-operatively. And so I think that's because with the healthy patient, I can restore the tension myself. I can put the tension back there. I know I can get a stronger repair so we can rehab them earlier and get them going quicker so we don't lose as much strength in the beginning and we can regain it faster. And, and so I think that's the reason. There is a role for non-operative treatment because there are unhealthy patients who do rupture theirs. And I can say, listen, here's what we're going to do and we can get you back there. And they may not need the same demands that the higher level athlete does. And so I think it's important to be able to do both, but for the higher level patient surgeries, the way to go. The way to go. Yeah. Of all the surgeries you do, what's your favorite to do? Aside from a successful one. I've heard that before. <laughs> Fair enough. That's a good one. I, I actually wouldn't go say that, but yeah. I'm going to have to put that one I, in my... I've heard that several times. I'm like, that's what I'm going to say now going forward. Yeah. But yeah. Let's assume you can make them all successful. What is it? Just from a personal standpoint, what do you enjoy doing most? Lateral ligament reconstructions. I like doing that because it's... We don't operate on the ankle sprain, right? I like it for two reasons. It's a patient who sprains their ankle over and over again, and they have a chronic problem that they're just just tired of. It's a fun surgery to do. It's a reliable surgery, has good outcomes, and that's the patient that you can get back, and we're getting them back quicker and quicker, and I just enjoy doing it. And because it's a patient who didn't just show up because they broke their ankle yesterday. I love fixing broken ankles, but 
you know, it's a patient who's been struggling and they come to you because they've been struggling and they can't do the things they like to do again. And, and you could pretty reliably put them back on track for, for what they used to do. So I'd probably put that number one. Yeah. That sounds like it's a pretty fun starter too. Reconstruction is always like cool. We're creating something new again from something that doesn't exist. That's pretty fun. When I think about ankle fractures, a lot of our training is in trauma. Surgeons don't scope joints. And then I think when you look at a lot of, even in residency, the foot and ankle specialists, they would do an arthroscopy. And the main focus was to look at the cartilage surface of the ankle joint. And clearly, in even in my limited experience in the world of foot and ankle, there are higher rates than one would expect of cartilage injury, even after right. a, a bad ankle sprain or a high ankle sprain or an ankle fracture. Do you think that that is really what the standard should be? And do you think it translates to better outcomes by scoping the ankle? I do. I do think it should be the standard. If you look at the literature, there's no great guidance out there. So I have a little bit of an arbitrary cutoff at 50. Don't ask me why. And I, I think, well, I'll, I'll give you a reason why, but there's no literature that says this. I think it's because if you get problems after the age of 50, it's something that we can handle with other reasons. But if you get bad arthritis at a younger age, it becomes a lot harder to deal with. So I use 50 as my cutoff. I do scope my ankle fractures. So I stick a arthroscope in the joint and I look in the joint. Sometimes I look in there, there's not much to do. And I get out sometimes, unfortunately, there's a lot of damage to the cartilage. I do it for three main reasons. Number one, it allows me to clean the joint out. It allows me to get rid of all the blood in the joint, clean everything up. And I think that makes a difference from a pain and recovery standpoint for the patient immediately post-op. Number one. Number two, if they do have cartilage damage, it allows me to address it at the time. And number three, it also allows me to know exactly what's going on in the joint. So if we have problems seven, eight months down the road, I can confidently say, I've been in your joint. I know it's there. It's not this. Let's look at that. So I, I do it for those three reasons. If you look at some of the science that's out there, there's, there's some pretty good supporting data that you should, that it can make some difference long-term with arthritis, which is ultimately what we're looking for. The whole reason we're fixing an ankle fracture is to put the joint back together so you don't have a cartilage problem. So why would you not want to go look at the cartilage? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me. I do a lot of scopes, so it makes <laughs> sense to me. But, you know, it's one of those things where if you were to mention that to, I can think about some of the guys sure. that are the trauma. They, they, there are plenty of people think that I'm crazy for doing it as much as I do, and I'm okay with that. I'm doing it to give me the full plate of knowledge right. and also to be able to address anything immediately that I can. You mentioned before about this idea that while we don't technically save lives, we restore stability. But there was one time where we actually had an impact on saving someone's life, and this was after an LSU game down in Baton Rouge. Can you tell us about that story and you and Lyle and Ben's experience doing that? That was wild. So any experience to Tiger Stadium is always a good one. And without getting into too many details, we should never have won that football game. We had a fumble late in the game. We ended up holding them to a field goal, getting it back, going down, kicking our own field goal, all with inside a minute, winning in overtime. So we were all excited and we were leaving and we were part of the police escort headed back to the Baton Rouge airport, which is a pretty good ways from Tiger Stadium. So we were on a four lane highway headed out of the campus. We were going down the wrong way of a four lane highway that was blocked off and we had our motorcade and the cops were passing us, blocking off the, I guess the crossovers, if you will, as we're headed up the highway. 
And unfortunately, one car tried to cut in front of our motorcade as one of the cops was coming by and he got hit. And he got what I would say T-bone right in front of us. And I'll, I'll never forget it. I remember seeing him get hit and knocked off his motorcycle and he went into the parking lot of a store that was off the side of the road. And I think, uh, I can't remember if Dr. Kane's wife, Jill, was driving or if Lyle was driving him, probably Lyle. I remember him slamming on the brakes and getting out and Benton Emblem and myself and Dr. Kane jump out of the car immediately because we knew, obviously, this, this guy was hurt. And we run over to him and we're the first people there. And so we immediately switched into our trauma mode. And I, I, to this day, I, I remember getting to him and the three of us stand over him and kneel down. And I was sure he was dead. Um, very sure. And f- he was unconscious. He was not breathing at the time and was obviously badly injured. I remember we took off his shirt. He had a helmet on. We tried to get him out of his helmet, which we ultimately did try to stabilize his head. And Lyle was at his head. I believe Lyle was at his head. Benton was on his chest and I was down by his pelvis. And so we went through our normal ABCs, airway breathing circulation. So initially we protected his airway, opened his mouth. We got him back breathing and he started to breathe and he didn't really wake up, but he was at least breathing. And I'll never forget at that point, I remember thinking, Lyle saying, okay, he's breathing. He was getting pulses. What else is going on? And I remember, not to be too graphic, feeling down his legs. And I stuck my hand inside his leg because he had open fractures. And I came out with my hand just full of blood. And I remember thinking, so he's got open fractures. He's... At least breathing now, he's got multiple rib fractures. He's got multiple cuts. He's got open fractures. And I thought, wow, we got a long way in front of us. But we fortunately were able to at least stabilizing the paramedics came. And it was a crazy, crazy time. I'll remember every detail like the back of my hand. And fortunately for him, he did low. I think it was a struggle for him for a while, but pretty wild experience. That's crazy. And it's one of those things where at that point... Nothing matters. Yeah. Alabama, yeah, LSU, yeah. football. You guys immediately jumped in, which was cool. And they actually wrote up a story, I think, in one of the local papers saying, Alabama doctors save LSU. Cops. We're at football games, yeah. not because we're fans. We're there. We are fans, but we're there to help protect the kids, keep their health and safety intact. And that doesn't change when you're outside of it. And so yeah. the, the game ends up paling in comparison to, to an incident like that. And we're there because the guy needed help. Yeah. And, and that was pretty pretty wild hopefully people don't have to experience that hopefully not but it's very fortunate you guys were there and literally saved his life moving on let's assume that you didn't have this opportunity to be orthopedic surgeon to really restore basketball coach yeah but that's what it is that's what it is Is that what you're gonna ask yeah what were you gonna ask i was gonna say if this wasn't a possibility (laughs) what is your dream job basketball coach yeah so not a golfer not a saltwater fly fisherman basketball coach okay i love it i still coach i coach my fifth grader for a little while i coach my second grader now we actually won the championship this year that over the mountain championship this year which was cool for the kids but yeah i I love it i think it's the people person in me i would be the absolute worst it's sitting behind the desk one of my biggest followers i talk too much everybody knows it's better (laughs) around me this podcast may never end (laughs) um 
And I just like people. I enjoy my patients. And if I couldn't do it, I'd be a basketball coach. I get to be around people all day. That's awesome. We've covered a lot of topics. I I think this has been fantastic. Anything that you have in terms of parting words for the listeners, whether it has to do with foot and ankle or anything else that you'd like to impart as far as wisdom? My thing that I always go back to, and I said this earlier, is you truly do stand on the shoulders of giants. I have been one of the most fortunate people in my life. I wouldn't be here without my parents. I wouldn't be here without my family, my sister, my wife, my kids. Nothing I do, I could do by myself. I'm in an awesome job because I have great partners like you who make my job fun, have built a, I guess, a base of knowledge, not because of anything I do. It's because I've been imparted an incredible wealth of knowledge by Dr. Clinton, who I've already said has a huge influence on me, Dr. Anderson from Carol Jones, Bruce Cohen, Hodges Davis, and then my family. So it doesn't work without other people. And whether I'm successful or not, that's for other people to judge, but I'm happy. I love what I do. And I'm in a position that I can be happy and love what I do more than anything in the world because I have awesome people around me. And I think people need to sometimes take a deep breath and be thankful for their surroundings and for the people that help support them. And I hope I support other people in the same way that they support me. And I think that's probably the thing that that ultimately allows me to do what I do, which is other people allow me uh, to be successful, not because of anything I do, but it's because of what they do to help me. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And it echoes what Dr. Andrews has said as well, is that he is the accumulation of those who have been before him, have taught him. And I think it's a great way to approach what you do as a surgeon. What we all do is, is trying to help people. And uh, it's, a, it's a great way to, to end this. And I thank you very much for all the time. Uh, this was fantastic. Got to learn a lot about you. And I think a lot of people will really take a lot from this. So again, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Norman Waldrop, one of our foot and ankle specialist here, not only to injury sports medicine, but really on the national scene in terms of really pushing forward our ability to treat foot and ankle injuries from a sports medicine and non-sports medicine standpoint. Keep an eye out for him. You can find him on Twitter at newaldrop 3 on Twitter <laughs> and keep an eye out for him because he's uh, going to be continuing to improve things in the world of foot and ankle. Norman, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Man, Mike, you've done a great job with this podcast. I appreciate you having me on. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you. As the final seconds tick off today's podcast, we here at the Victory Over Injury Podcast and the Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center would like to sincerely thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to a deeper dive into the world of sports medicine. We hope you enjoyed it. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Ryan. Until next time, be well and take care. Goodbye. Andrews Sports Medicine and Orthopedic Center has built a worldwide reputation for excellence in sports medicine and orthopedic patient care, research, education, and prevention. We couldn't have done it without our dedicated physicians and staff and the hundreds of thousands of patients who have trusted in our team to aggressively pursue victory over injury. Our practice works as a team to deliver multidisciplinary sports medicine and orthopedic care, a concept pioneered by our co-founder, Dr. James Andrews. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. 